0: Welcome to The Hills. My name is Rick. I'm the senior teaching minister here, and I'm delighted you're sharing Father's Day with us. Now, I want you to know, this is a particularly special Father's Day for me. Let me explain. So last September, you might recall that my daughter Morgan gave birth to a beautiful granddaughter. So this is my son-in-law Grant's very first Father's Day as a dad. And then a couple of months ago, uh, my son Matthew Uh, became a dad for the first time. His wife, Jill, gave birth to uh, my perfect grandson, Carter. So this is my son's very first Father's Day. I guess that's kind of important, but the really, really big deal today, it's my first Father's Day as a grandfather. That's what we need to celebrate. And we intend to do so. Now, I know that I'm talking to some men right now who are a little nervous because the tradition often in many churches is on Father's Day to hammer the fathers. Let's be honest. Have you ever gone to church on Mother's Day where the pastor picked a text from the Bible of a woman who was a bad mother, made some points, and said to all the women, now, don't be like her. Of course not. On Mother's Day, we celebrate Sarah or Ruth or Hannah or Mary. But have you ever on a Father's Day had the pastor... Take Jacob or Eli or David as examples and said, don't be like them. See, that's what we do on Father's Day, but we're not going to do that today. Today, we're going to honor the men among us who take seriously their assignment to be a blessing to the next generation. Now, ironically, we're going to do that by turning to one of the few books of the Bible named after a woman. So get out your phones, your tablets, your Bibles, and find in the Old Testament a book called Esther. Now God is faithful. God is faithful to his promises, whether those are promises of blessing or warnings. And so God warned Israel, if you worship foreign gods, I will send you to foreign countries where those gods are. And so we saw uh, an Assyrian captivity and a Babylonian captivity as God's people were taken off for their idolatry. But God, because he is faithful was not going to break the covenant he made with Abraham. And so the story of the people of Israel continues even after captivity. We have, for example, books in the Bible like Daniel and Ezekiel that tell us about the life of the exiles while they were in captivity. And then when the captivity was over and the people could come home, we have books like Ezra and Nehemiah that tell us about that chapter of their lives. But not everybody came home some of the exiles stayed. We only have one book in the Bible that tells us about them, and that's the book that we call Esther. And it's some of the greatest theater in all the Bible. So I'm going to take about 10 minutes and tell you the story, because it's important to the points I want to make today. The story starts, Acts 1, in the garden of the king of Persia. Now, his name was Xerxes, and To give you an idea of how vast his empire was, it was 127 provinces that stretched from India to Ethiopia, the largest empire the world had ever seen. So he has all the governors of his 127 provinces come to his capital city of Susa because he wants to show off the splendor of his empire. Now, it would take you a couple of months to get from Ethiopia or India to the capital city. So you don't come that far for a two-day conference. They have a six-month celebration of the grandeur of Persia. It is a huge party. And Xerxes decides after six months to have a seven-day after-party party party, because the man likes to party. We're going to see that. And it's during the after-party party that he thinks, I have shown off all my kingdom except my gorgeous wife. These guys need to see how beautiful Vashti is. Now, he's probably inebriated. And it's probably not a noble request. He wants her to come in before a bunch of drunk men and be eye candy. And she refuses. We've got a crisis. The cabinet immediately meets and says, Xerxes, these men are going to go back to your entire empire and say the queen did not obey the king. And we're going to have a crisis on our hands. This could upset the uh, stability of the homes and the way that we do life in your empire. So you need to depose Vashti and get a new queen. And that's what launches our story. Act two is in the citadel of Susa. And a nationwide search is set for a new queen. That's when we meet what I think is one of the most underappreciated heroes in the Bible. And the name was Mordecai. Now, Mordecai was a great-grandson of exiles. In other words, he has lived all his life in Persia. His dad had a brother who married and had a daughter. And then Mordecai's aunt and uncle died. And his cousin is an orphan. And we meet Mordecai introduced as an adoptive father. Chapter 2, Mordecai had a cousin named Hadassah, whom he had brought up because she had neither mother nor father. This young woman, who was also known as Esther, had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Mordecai had taken her as his own daughter when her father and mother died. Notice she has two names. Hadassah is her Jewish name. Hadassah means dazzling beauty, and she must have been. And so she's chosen to be in the pageant, And after 12 months, of all things, Esther is picked to be the new queen. Mordecai says just one piece of advice. Don't tell the king you are a Jew. Now, Act 3 takes place at the king's gate, where Mordecai was, which means he must have been a man of some prestige. And he overhears a plot of two guards to assassinate Xerxes. He tells Esther, she tells the king, the king investigates the two guards are put to death, and Esther makes sure that Mordecai is given credit, and it is recorded in the king's record books. And this is going to become very important later. Now, in Act Four, we meet what I think is one of the most underappreciated villains in the Bible, and the name was Haman. Now, Haman was second in command in Persia, and he was an egomaniac. And when he came by, he wanted people to bow down to him. And most did, not out of respect, but out of fear. But Mordecai wouldn't bow. Mordecai was cut out of the cloth of Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego. Now, he could live in a foreign country. He could serve a foreign government for their good. But he would only bow to his God. And because Haman was such a narcissist... He overreacted and said, I don't want to just kill a Jew. I want to kill Jews. So he goes to Xerxes and says, there's a people in your land that are treacherous and seditious. And given a chance, they will revolt against you. Your best thing you can do is eliminate them. And Xerxes, who was not the brightest kid in his class, goes along with a plan and seals a law that basically allows ethnic genocide. And they cast a lot. It's the first month of the year. When can we execute this plan? And the lot falls on the 12th month. Now, that's going to be important later too. And so the couriers go out. Remember, it's going to take a couple of months to get the news out to all the empire that on the 12th month, it is okay to slaughter Jews. And so all the Jews in the land mourn. They put on sackcloth and ashes, including Mordecai. Esther knows nothing about this. She gets word that Mordecai is in mourning. She sends messages to find out why. And Mordecai sends back the word and says, Esther, it is time to let the king know you are a Jew. You must go and plead for your people. Now, Esther has asked it. She says, Mordecai, you understand, to appear unsummoned in front of the king is to invite death. But Mordecai responds with one of the greatest verses in the Bible. Chapter 4, verse 13, who knows, but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. And Esther is convicted, and she knows she's going to need the protection of God, so she requests that all the Jews in the city go on a three-day fast. And she replies in verse 16, when this is done, I will go to the king, even though it's against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Next scene, not long after this, Esther shows up unsummoned in the king's courtroom. Everyone holds their breath. The king, Caesar, holds out his scepter and welcomes her. Says, What can I do for you, my king? She knows her man. She says, I want to throw you a party. And Xerxes perks up and says, a party? Really? Yes, today at my house, a party for you and for Haman. So Xerxes shows up, and he is having the best time. He says, my queen, tell me what you want. I'll give you up to half my kingdom. Just tell me what you want. She says, I want you to come to another party at my house. She knows her man. And Xerxes says, if I come, will you tell me what you want, what you really, really want? She says, I'll tell you what I want, what I really, really want. Because she's into the Spice Girls. So, Haman goes home, full of himself, thinking, I'm not only the second most important man in the country, but when the queen throws a party, I'm the only one she invites beside the king. And then he walks by Mordecai. And he is completely deflated. And he says to his wife, with all the blessing and power I have, it means nothing because that one Jew will not bow to me. And his wife says, why do you have to wait to the 12th month to kill a Jew? Build a pole, go to Xerxes, get permission, and impel him on it tomorrow. Haman says, great idea. He goes to sleep. Well, what he doesn't know is that Xerxes can't go to sleep. He's tossing, he's turning. He says, bring me the king's record books. Not because he wants to do research, because he thinks that's so dull, I'll go to sleep. And they just happened to open the books to the story of Mordecai saving the king's life. And the king says, did we do anything for him? No, we didn't do anything. So the next morning, Haman is showing up with a request to kill Mordecai. But the king says, wait a second, Haman, I got something to ask you first. If I wanted to show somebody special honor and let everyone know how much I like him, what would I do? Haman, because he's a narcissist, thinks he's talking about me. He says, well, king, I would put one of your robes on his back. I'd put him on one of your horses, and I'd have one of your princes walk him through town saying, king thinks this guy is a stud. And Zerg says, great, go get Mordecai, and you do that for him. (laughs) Mordecai is humiliated. And he is infuriated. And he goes home to throw himself a pity party. But before he can, guards show up to remind him he's supposed to go to another party. So he shows up at the second party with Xerxes. And he says to his queen, tell me what you want, what you really, really want. And he was not ready for the answer. His queen said, I want you to spare my life and the life of my people. Because there's a law giving others permission to wipe out my people, and again, he's not the brightest guy in school. He says, "Who could do such a thing?" And she turns to Haman and says, "You, the man." The king is so upset he goes outside to cool off. Haman throws himself on her couch to beg for mercy. The king walks in, thinks he's advancing on his wife, and before that day is over, they take Haman out and they impale him on the pole he had set up to kill Mordecai. But there's one more act. Esther says, king, would you take back that law you signed? He says, I can't do that. Once I sign a law, it's done, but I can sign a second law. A law that says it's okay for the Jews and anyone who wants to help them to defend themselves on that day. And so he signs that law. And remember, because the day was in the 12th month, the couriers had time to make the long trip and get that second law read in time. And the peoples of the empire read the second law and said, no, wait a second. You mean our queen as a Jew and the king's favorite man as a Jew? I'm not helping kill Jews. I'm going to help the Jews kill their enemies. And that's exactly what happened. And the enemies of the Jews are eliminated. And it's a great, great day for God's people. And Mordecai rises to great prominence. In fact, I think you could legitimately argue that the book ought to be named Mordecai. Look at the very last verse of the book. Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Xerxes. Preeminent among the Jews and held in high esteem by his many fellow Jews because he worked for the good of his people and he spoke up for the welfare of all the Jews. It's a tremendous story. And to this day, Jewish people celebrate a feast in honor of the story of Esther and Mordecai. But I want to share with you a couple of key themes that could be easy to miss in that story that I want us to see. The first is a little more obvious. and That is that it builds in us a greater appreciation for the Father's providence. See, there are only two books in the Bible that never mention God. One is the Song of Solomon, and one is the story of Esther. God's name is never mentioned in the whole book, but His fingerprints are all over the story through His providence. Think about it. Was it just a coincidence that Xerxes picked a Jew to be his queen, not knowing she was a Jew? Was it just a coincidence that Mordecai showed up at the king's gate the day the plot was being hatched and overheard it? Was it just a coincidence that Xerxes couldn't go to sleep the night before Mordecai was to be murdered? Was it a coincidence they open up the annals and it just happens to fall to the story of Mordecai saving the king's life? Was it just a coincidence that the lot fell on the 12th month, giving the couriers time to get the second edict to the empire in time to save the Jews' lives? Typically, we use the word miracle to talk about when God acts supernaturally. But I would argue miracles are more than that. That God can use natural means to work His purposes. And that he can use people that are completely unaware that they're being used by God as he moves through events and timing and history to accomplish his will. And isn't it true in your own life that you can often look back and see that things just happened to happen like they did. And in the moment, you didn't realize it. But you look back and realize those weren't coincidences. That was God graciously and providentially working in my life. So, maybe today you feel up against it. You feel like everyone or someone with great power is against you. And I would just encourage you to hang in with God. Because God has the last word on the story of His people. And there are things God is doing right now in your life that you don't even know right now are happening, but you will later. And this story is designed to build in us a great appreciation for the Father's providence. But there's one more thing. It's more subtle, but I think it's just as critical. And that is that the story intended to build in us a greater appreciation for a Father's significance. Just think about it. This whole story hinges On a choice that is often completely unnoticed. That Mordecai decided to dad. It's too bad that his aunt and uncle died. Left a little girl. He could have packed her up and sent her back to Palestine and said tell some family back there to raise her. He could have found somebody else. I'm sure there were orphanages around. He could have said, too bad. But that's not my problem. And instead, he stepped up for such a time as this. And he became the father figure that his young cousin needed. And every child needs what Esther got. The significance of a father figure in their life. So this past week, I just googled significance of a father in a child's life, and more research came up than I had time to read. Not Christian-based research, but studies by the U.S. government and by secular universities on the significance of a father figure in the life of a child. Dr. David Popno professor of theology at Rutgers, wrote this. Fathers are more than just second adults in the home. Involved fathers bring positive benefits to their children that no other person is as likely to bring. They provide protection, economic support, male role models. They have a parenting style that is significantly different from that of a mother, and that difference is important in healthy child development. It takes a man and a woman to create a child. So it's not a big leap to conclude God wants a father and a mother to raise a child. Now, I understand, and I'm speaking to many people now who are single parents or who were raised by single parents. And we are continually inspired by your heroism. God bless you for what you do. But you would be the first to say the ideal for any child is to have an engaged mother, an engaged father. So let me just share with you some of the mountains of research I read last week. That when a child has an engaged father figure, he's more likely to make better grades, earn higher degrees, have a stable marriage, and be more religious. Children are less likely when they have a father figure to abuse substances, be in prison, get pregnant out of wedlock, experience sexual abuse, four times less likely to be poor. We just finished a significant talk about mental health. So I read in the 2021 Journal of Family Psychology a report studying what effects warm, caring dads have on mental health for their kids. The impact was so statistically significant, they called it the good father effect. We cannot minimize the impact, the significance of a caring father figure in a child's life. And the US Census Bureau says currently 24 million children in our country live without a father in their lives. So, we're asking for nations and generations, right? What does that mean for us as we respond to such a time as this? Well, let me suggest three things. Number one, the next generation needs to be adopted by dads. Now, let me remind you, no child is an accident There are pregnancies that were surprises, but no child is an accident. The Scripture says children are a gift from the Lord, and they are a reward from Him. And if something is a gift from God, God expects His gift to be stewarded. A lot of you know I'm an adoptive father. We went the infertility journey and were told we would never have children biologically. So we adopted Michael and we adopted Morgan and we're so thrilled that we could. And then five years later, Jamie got pregnant. Something doctors said would never happen. Now, we had always told Michael and Morgan they were adopted, that they grew in another mother's tummy. And they came to our family. And we told them that mommy is pregnant and is going to have a baby. And we would gather around mommy and we would pray. And we would say, we're going to love this baby, whether it's a boy or a girl. And Morgan, about four-year-olds, would always pray, let it be a brother. (laughs) And as Jamie got larger, Morgan got more concerned. And she would ask us regularly, are we going to adopt this baby? And we said, no, honey, we have no plans to adopt the baby. The baby is growing in mommy's tummy. But she wouldn't drop it. In fact, she almost had a meltdown one day in the car. And she growled, we got to adopt this baby. And it dawned on us. that little Morgan did not understand that babies are born into homes and stay there. She thought mothers have babies. And then someone else takes the baby away to a different family. And so we said, Morgan, we're going to adopt this baby. Matthew was born. It was a boy just like she prayed. And about a week later, we got all the family together in our living room. And we said, we have decided that we should adopt Matthew. Is everybody okay with that? And everyone nodded. And we adopted Matthew. And Morgan never brought it up again. I'll say again. Every child is a gift from God. Who deserves to be stewarded. Every child should be adopted. And the next generation needs more Mordecais, men who will step up and be present in their lives. And today, I want to honor all the men in our church who are doing that. You're coaching upwards. You're serving as a mentor in Academy 4 in local schools. You're serving in Teen Lifeline or as a student group leader. Just this last week, a number of men in our church gave up their va- their, a week's vacation, and they went to our father's children camp, a camp for foster kids. And for one week, some of those kids had the strongest male model they'd ever had in their lives. Thank you. And you teach in our classes. You know, one of our vision goals is that 2,000 of us a year would do something significant in the life of a child. It wasn't our intention that would be 1,900 women and 100 men. We believe God is calling us as men to step up and be role models for the next generation. And here's why that matters. Because the next generation will be impacted by their mentors. The question is not, will the next generation find mentors? The question is, what kind of mentors will they find? And their mentors will shape them. And tell them what matters. Think about it. Where did Esther get the courage to put her life at risk and walk into the king's courtroom? You think maybe it came from growing up in a home led by a man that would not bow to anybody except his God. You see, values are caught more than they're taught. Marcus Freeman, he was an outstanding linebacker at Ohio State, played in the NFL, became a rising college coach, and got his first head coaching job at Notre Dame, one of the most prestigious college football programs in the country. He's got a family with six kids. Football coaching is an intensive job, so he has the habit of having his wife bring his kids constantly to practice. One, he wants to see his kids. But a second is he wants to impact his team. And he said... I want our players to see Coach Freeman as Dad Freeman and Husband Freeman. They're not always going to remember what I said about football, but they're always going to remember how they saw Coach Freeman as a father and as a husband, and that's really important. Max Lecater writes, he's a little boy at the Andrews Church of Christ in West Texas, trying not to fall asleep, and his dad would give him his pocketbook. And he noticed one Sunday, 52 checks written out to the Andrews Church of Christ that on the first day of every year, his dad, who did not have much money, would write 52 checks and postate them to make sure that God's work always came first in his finances. And Max said, my dad never gave me a lecture, but he gave me a lesson. If you came to the funeral I preached for my father a few months ago, you heard me say, my favorite part of church as a boy was standing next to my dad. And listening to him sing. My dad did not watch people sing. My dad sang. And by the way, your kids are watching dads when you worship. Up until late of his life, he would come to our church. He hadn't grown up singing with the band. He didn't know our songs. It didn't matter. My dad sang. My dad did not tell me it's important to worship. He showed me. Because the two most important words... In a mentor to a disciple are not. Listen up. They are. Follow me. And this is why that matters. Because the next generation must be directed to God's purpose for their lives. You see, one of the greatest responsibilities and privileges of any generation is to help the next generation find their For this reason, that you're not an accident. You're not a coincidence. You live when you do, where you do, for the purposes of God, and I am here to help you figure out what that is. It's our assignment to equip them to imagine and to pursue huge dreams for the kingdom of God. This is my first Father's Day as a grandfather, it's also my first Father's Day. Where I can't call my dad. So I've been thinking a lot this week about memories. One of my favorites, some years back, my alma mater gave me an honor. I did not deserve it. Part of the tribute was people were given cards to fill out and sign. And so a week later, they sent me over a hundred cards of notes people had just written. And I'm flipping through them and reading. And I didn't know my dad had done one. And dad's card wrote, I think the reason I was put on this earth was to get you launched. You don't forget something like that. See, our goal is not just to finish the race. Our goal is to pass the baton to the next generation. And that's why I'm so grateful today for all of you who are deciding to dad your children, and any child who needs a Mordecai. And I want you to hear a story of a man like that in our church. Joseph Bryant attends our Keller campus. He and Janae were not able to have children biologically. They decided to adopt. They made a courageous decision to adopt precious Ashley, a beautiful girl with very serious disabilities. They became a family. And then the story took a turn Joseph didn't expect. So listen as he gives his testimony.
1: Well, I'm Joseph Bryant. I have a daughter by name Ashley Bryant, and I had a wife by the name of Janae Bryant. October 25th, Janae wakes up and she goes, I feel dizzy. It feels like I almost, it's almost like a stroke. I drive um, Janae down to HEB. Immediately, there's a neurologist. He comes by, looks at the, the monitor looks at her eyes, looks at her, and goes, I don't think it's a stroke. They move Janae into a CAT scan. About 30 minutes later, he comes back, and he goes, I can't help you. He goes, there's a mass. There's a mass in her brain that we can see. I've already contacted a neurosurgeon down at Harris. Um, There's an ambulance coming to pick you up. We're going to move you to Harris. Um, He'll be able to answer your questions for you. He goes, I just cannot help you. We went through weeks of um, hospice care. And Janae dies on um, February the 11th. That Friday, hospice people came and took all the stuff, and I moved everything back into the living room like it was supposed to be. Um try to get life back to normal for, for Ashley as fast as possible. We had a nurse um, with Ashley said, uh, Mr. Brian, I think Ashley's not feeling well. She's very cold. So I take Ashley to Cook's urgent care in Hearst here. They start evaluating her and they put her on a monitor and her blood pressure is dropping. Finally, we get up to ICU and I'm in the hallway walking down kind of going, God, you and I need to talk. Just lost my wife. We're in the middle of, um, we're in the middle of ICU. I mean, what's happening to me? Why are you doing this? Get in the elevator, go down, go down to cafeteria all the way through that hallway. And if you've ever been to Cook's cafeteria, you go through and there's big windows out there. And you know, I'm at my pity party and I look out and there's ice and snow everywhere. <laughs> I found out that my home on Sunday had lost power and lost power all the way to Thursday. (laughs) You know, as I learned that information, I'm going, my gosh, God, you let Janae die at the right time. Because what would I have done if she had lived a little bit longer and Ashley was as sick as she is? How would I have had to choose between my daughter and my wife? And then how would I take care of two people without power? It turns out that Ashley takes a change. By Wednesday, she's doing really good. And by Thursday, they're wanting to dismiss her, and that's when power gets back on. And that's the moment that I looked and said, okay, you know more than I do. Right before Janae lost her ability to be able to talk, there was one day that it was just us together, and she was, I'm sorry, I'm leaving you with Ashley. I was like, no, we're gonna be fine. I knew what I was doing when we went before the judge. When we said yes to all those questions, I knew what I was doing. God has really, really has brought us through. Even all the hospital visits and everything else, God has always been there with Ashley and I. With everything that's gone through those past few years with Ashley, uh, losing Janae, I know that I'm not a mother. I, I can't do the things that mothers do for, um, for my daughter, but as a father, <laughs> trying to be like God in the sense of how he's a good father that I'll do whatever I do to provide for her, even if it means that I change her diapers to learn how to, I had to learn how to do a catheter. That didn't work out when we had the urostomy, and now I, Mondays and Thursdays, I have to catheterize her through her stoma. As a father, you will do anything for your child. Ever since this little girl came into my life, everything's been different. And I love it.
0: Thank you, Joseph, for reminding us that every child matters. And he's a father. Some years ago, I read a book by Tim Kimmel. He was a popular Christian author. And I learned a story about him that he had a desk where he did most of his writing. And on his desk, he had three pictures. On the left was a picture of the hospital where he was born. On the right was a picture of the cemetery where he was probably going to be buried. And in the middle was a picture of his family. To remind him, this is where I started. This is where it will end. And this is what matters in between. The best way to save a nation is to save the next generation. And to do that, we need the Father's help. So we're going to ask, and again, I just want to say to all the men who are stepping up for the Esters in our city, thank you. Let's bow. I'll finish the prayer, but you start. I want you to take a moment. Did you have a strong father figure in your life that poured into you? A dad, a granddad, a coach, a teacher, a youth minister? Would you take a moment and thank God that you had a Mordecai? One more thing. We all know an Esther. We all know a child somewhere who needs a father figure. Would you pray for your Esther that she would find one? And if you are an Esther, if you need a father figure, ask God to bring you one right now. So God we pray for the Esther's among us that every child will know they're special they're not accidents they're not coincidences they are cherished and born for a reason and God we pray for the Mordecais that need to let them know that please raise up more men who will love the next generation and thank you for the men that did that for us